As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. So welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm very excited to welcome Jessica Chiarella to the program. Jessica, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So uh, I always like to say that this is about uncorking the stories behind the story. So I'm very curious as to where your story begins in terms of um, kind of your path to becoming a, a working author. Um, so I'd like to start as, as, as early as we can. So what, what did you start thinking that, that this could be a career choice for you? Um, I think I was probably six or seven years old when, you know, the answer every time someone asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up was I wanted to be a writer. You know, I, I loved Little Women. I loved Joe March. You know, that was sort of imprinted on me as like, yeah, this is exactly the person that I want to be. And I always loved stories. My my mother is actually a, a, a librarian. She's a retired uh, youth services librarian. So like in our family, books were of paramount importance. I mean, it was just, that was what we did with our free time was we were book people. So that, so I, yeah, I'm sorry. You were were surrounded by, surrounded by books. Oh, all the time. Yeah. I mean, like we would go to the library, I think two or three times a week and just always get new books and read them together. And I mean that, that I think more than anything being read to as a kid gave me a very strong internal narrator. You know, I was I was always the sort of person who could sit down at a blank page and just imagine, you know, what I was thinking kind of, you know, in, in the same sense that you're being read to. So it was very easy for me to sort of find my way into a story. That way the words just sort of came for me. Um, and then I took a more circuitous path once I, gets, once I got older. You know, I got in, you know, I 
got to high school and, you know, I would start off these stories and think, well, I don't know where this goes. You know, I don't know how to finish this story. I don't know what a middle is supposed to be like. And I didn't realize that writing is very hard, you know, even for people who are successful at it. It's very difficult and there will always be stumbling blocks and points in which you don't know what the next turn was going to be. And, you know, I've taken a lot of classes and been in a lot of programs and have sort of learned the tricks to figuring out where a story should go and what a story needs. But at that point, I thought it just meant that I wasn't very talented. You know, I thought that a good writer would have a sense of exactly where their story was supposed to go. And because I didn't, I thought, okay, well, I'm good at coming up with concepts, but I'm not a very good writer. I, I you know, I never know where they're supposed to go. So I sort of shifted to other things. You know, I, I ended up going to uh, undergrad for political science, which I was and am still very fascinated by. And, you know, I kind of I graduated in 2009 and sort of looked out on the landscape of the Great Recession and thought grad school might be a good idea. <laughs> and, you know, the the one thing I had this professor um, for a, a creative nonfiction class that was in my last quarter of undergrad. And she just happened to mention at the end of the class that, that DePaul University, the school that I was at, had a master's of writing and publishing. And it was based on learning how to write fiction. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. The idea of just spending time writing fiction, it was what I did in my free time. I mean, I never finished anything, but I would start these stories and kind of write and write and write. And just finding out, oh, there's a place where I can do this seriously with other people who want to be serious about this was it was like a you know a you know to reach for a very terrible metaphor just like a door opened you know and i i walked through and have kind of never looked back so i did an ma at depaul and then i went on and did an mfa in creative writing at the university of california riverside and that was sort of the way into professional writing for me that's kind of where i got my start how important do you suppose um that those two master's programs were for you in terms of, you know, building confidence, building a support system, building a network of, of people together. How, how important are all those things? Very important, I would say. Um, I think the real difference for me was a professor that I had at DePaul's Master's of Writing and Publishing, Rebecca Johns. I mean, she was the, the first person who really sort of pulled me aside after class and was like, you're writing very good stuff. You you need to take this very seriously. And she has been, you know, the kind my, you know, my mentor and my advocate ever since in terms of yeah, helping me make contacts, kind of giving me the the bird's eye view of okay, what does publishing look like for somebody who had never done it before? Um, and, you know, I think the MFA was really helpful as well. I mean, both programs I was working with wonderful students, you know, I, I made fantastic friends at my MFA program. Um, all of the professors were incredibly, incredibly supportive. But, you know, to, to have that kind of initial, you know, attention from a professor, I think while I was still pretty young, while I was just starting out and feeling like, oh, you know, I'm giving this a try, but I don't know. To have someone say, yes, you know, you should be focusing on this. You are on the right path. I think that early positive feedback kind of made all the difference for me. Yeah. You know, whether, um, you know, I, I speak with a lot of authors um, doing this um, 
And the one thing that everybody, you know, has in common is that there was somebody at some point in their life who encouraged them, um, who gave them, you know, and that could have been, you know, for some, some of the people I talked to, it was like a, a teacher in grammar school. Um, and to other people, it's, you know, people a little bit, um, you know, kind of later on in their, in their schooling or, or somebody else in their life. But, but that encouragement to, to encourage the creative process, you know, it's almost like a seed that needs to be watered and, and, and have some sunlight from time, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think for writers in particular, because it is not something that you're just doing for yourself. And I think that that's something that, you know, a lot of young writers sort of have to learn that, yeah, you might enjoy writing and this might be the story that you are most invested in, but you also have readers and you also, you know, need like what you are doing is one half of an interaction, you know, and so I think not only to have somebody say, yes, you know, you are, you know, you have talent, you should be focusing on this because everything in your life is sort of telling you, no, that this is not a worthwhile pursuit, that this is not something that a serious person would spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to do. Um, you know, having that feedback, yeah, it is. It's um, incredibly nourishing and it really does help you grow. But I also think it's the first time I realized that what a reader um, took out of my story mattered. You know, I think being in a workshop situation, you're learning to read other people's work critically. They're reading your work critically you're sort of learning what all of that means and you're sort of trying to navigate that line between, okay, this is the story that I want to write. How much do I need to care about the story that the reader wants me to write? And so I think getting feedback and especially getting positive feedback um, really sort of teaches you about that kind of transactional relationship that you are writing work to be read if you, if you want to work professionally in this area. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's an interesting tension there because there's this tension between, as an artist, what you want to say and how you're choosing to say it. But on the flip side, there's the commercial reality of, you know, what readers are looking for. And, you know, I was, I was talking to, to somebody um, a couple of weeks ago on this program who said she published her first novel. It, you know, it sold relatively well, small printing, but, you know, it was published through the trade she had an agent she thought her second novel was going to be easier to sell and the feedback she was getting was um we don't see the writing is strong we don't see a commercial you know reality here and which upset her but but she took her energy and then wrote something that got her a two book deal and you know now uh, is is working with samantha b on a on a small screen adaptation of it so wow. it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just interesting how how that sort of that tension is that that the story that we want to tell or that the way we want to say it and 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 realizing that maybe we don't have all the answers, um, you know, I think is is fascinating to me. Yeah, and I think I feel that a lot, um, especially in this point in my career where I feel like you know I made this shift from, you know, my first book was speculative fiction. It was you know kind of upmarket, you know, like magical realism. And then, you know, I went to my MFA program and that my first book was actually published while I was at my MFA program. And that program was very focused on craft. You know, it was very focused on, um, you know, sort of 
the pursuit of literary fiction, of writing literary fiction. And so then to come out of that and turn around and write a thriller, uh, for me, was it was very much about trying to figure out how I could craft the best story that I could, you know, and it was for me, I sort of rediscovered a love of writing in writing this book because, you know, it's like if the writer's not having fun, the reader's not having fun. And I feel like the more I tried to stay within the lines of, okay, this is, you know, the kind of work that I've done before, this is the kind of work that, you know, I should be doing, you know, I don't think anyone thought that the next book that I would write would be, you know, a thriller that centered around podcasting. But I love reading thrillers and I love listening to true crime podcasts. And so I kind of reached this point where I was like, why am I spinning my wheels trying to write things that I think people would want me to write? Why don't I just write something that's going to be a really good time to write and hopefully a really good time to read? Mm -hmm. So there is that tension between you know, the, the sort of, you know, I, I would, yeah, commercial, you know, interests where it's like, yes, you know, if you want to be a professional writer, you have to think about, you know, writing books that people want to read. You know, it can't just be an inward looking endeavor. You have to always think about the reader. And I'll tell you, I've never thought about the reader more than writing a thriller because it's all about misdirection and trying to keep people turning the page. And I think I, I learned a lot from, from working in this genre and uh, had a lot of fun along the way. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm curious, it sounds like you've, you've kind of overcome that, uh, that obstacle or barrier you had when you were younger, which is having a lot of concepts, but not being able to finish them. What, what specifically helped you um, sort of overcome that, overcome that barrier? Well, I think the first thing was to realize, oh, most people have this problem. You know, like, I think, you know, the there is this idea with young writers where everything needs to come out of you perfect. You know, the like, the, the concept of revision is sort of foreign. And it's like, I have these conversations all the time with writer friends of mine where it's like, no, you've got to write something that's incredibly rough, that's incredibly messy, like Anne Lamott talks all the time about first drafts being you know, essentially garbage and everyone writes bad first drafts and, you know, then going back and being able to revise and figure out, okay, this was a misstep. Maybe it should be like this. And then giving it to readers and getting their feedback about where a story is supposed to go. I think, you know, just learning that, oh, that part is supposed to be hard. You know, most people don't have this, you know, global view of what their story is going to be when they sit down to write it. Um, You know, so I think that, being in workshops really helped, you know, this idea that writing is, is a process and it's a process of continuous, um, you know, evaluation of what you're working on from you and from other people as well. So I think finding good first readers, finding people that I trust to give me honest, critical feedback, um, was really, really helpful with like, you know, trying to determine, okay, where should this story go? Is this moving in the right direction? And particularly, on this most recent one on the lost girls i was actually just like working it out with a friend of mine as i was going and sort of bouncing ideas off of him and saying what do you think about this what do you think about this and so it was that was really helpful so i think it's sort of reaching the point where you realize that you know that writing is a long game and the thing that you end up with is so very different from you know 
initially what you get down on the page when you first sit down that that was very reassuring for me as a writer that oh it's I don't have to get this all great on the first try you know this is not it doesn't have to come out of me you know brilliant and perfect if it, if it will ever reach that point so do uh, for the lost girls did you work with an outline did you outline the book the story before before writing it I did, yeah. Um, th this one I felt like I had to. It was the first. It was the first book that I ever had outlined. I tended to make outlines later in my previous work, where you know I'd kind of write a book and then then outline it to see if things lined up and everything was working in terms of you know I sort of have um, like screenplay structure in the back of my head all the time because I've taken a few screenwriting courses and so I have this idea of like okay you know stories on you know in our cultural consciousness tend to unfold in these sorts of ways and you know can i move around beats to to sort of fit within this structure but the lost girls yeah i had to outline the whole thing just to make sure i was getting the right details you know added at the right times and just because it deals with these sort of involved cases that i just had to make sure that i was on you know like relaying the information correctly at the right time and getting all the details correct i had to really outline it beforehand so that was the first time i'd ever done that because your your first book you mentioned was speculative fiction was that mm -hmm. and again yes mm -hmm. okay so what's in terms of the, the the big differences between writing speculative fiction and your experience writing the lost girls which is which is definitely a thriller what's um what's the what are, what's the big the the biggest uh, differences between the two genres and how you approach them. Yeah, I mean, I, th I don't think I could have approached them any more differently um, in that I wrote and again, actually in a class at DePaul uh, during my master's program. It was this novel writing boot camp class where we had to write 60,000 words in 10 weeks and send them to the professor at the end of the week. And if you hit 60,000 words, you got an A. And if you didn't hit 60,000 words, you failed. And it didn't matter if the words were good or bad or anything. You just had to get it done. So it was just writing a thousand words a day, six days a week for 10 weeks straight and learning how to, you know, get into the habit of just sitting down at the computer and producing. So that, I mean, I just, I wrote the first draft of And Again there thinking I've got this concept. I don't know where it's going in my way. And you know, just sort of the, the nice thing about working with a class is that I would show up every week and, you know, we had a sense of what, he, you know, the projects that we were all working on. And so I would say, I'm thinking of taking it in this direction. What do you guys think about that? And they would sort of give me, you know, feedback as I was going. But I mean, that book changed originally when I wrote it. It was one point of view. Um, and then when I got to the end of that first draft, that 60,000 words, I thought, wow, my protagonist is not very interesting, but all the side characters are very interesting. Maybe I need to, you know, write from their perspectives as well. So that's, um, so yeah, then I was, did this major rewrite where I added in, all, you know, these three other points of view and, you know, it was sort of just kind of writing into the characters, seeing the ways in which the characters would react, um, in, in the situation that I had put them in within this concept and so I didn't have an outline and I just sort of wrote, you know, towards the ending as things unfolded and, you know, ended up with this draft that that ended up selling, you know, completely out of the blue. So that, you know, that was the way that I had always sort of written. With The Lost Girls, it's the exact opposite. I was writing thinking, okay, this is something that I want to write with an eye towards publication, which I had not been thinking the first time. 
you know, I, I wanted to write a thriller. I'd set out to write, you know, a thriller because I enjoy them so much. And so I knew I had to write with an outline to get all these details right, to get, you know, to get the red herrings in the right spot and get all the misdirection seeded in. And, you know, to keep people engaged, I knew I had to sort of think about the reader and really consider the reader as I was writing, which I really didn't do as much with the first one. And then sort of just hew towards uh, to the um, the tenets of, of thriller writing. You know, I've read enough thrillers to sort of have an idea of, you know, the, the genre conventions. And so I tried to work within, you know, those those boundaries as much as possible. So it was, you know, it went from a very experimental form of writing where it's just sort of working on this project and it doesn't have to be anything and oh my gosh it ended up getting published to okay i'm being very deliberate about every choice that i'm making in this second book and so there were probably bigger genre differences than i really considered but i think for me the big difference is how i approached it and sort of the you know the view of what the end goal was uh was the real big difference for me so tell me what is the lost girls about the Lost Girls is about Marty Reese, who is uh, who has a true crime podcast that examines the disappearance of her older sister when they were children. Her sister was a little bit older than her, um, and, she, and Marty was eight years old when her older sister disappeared. Basically, they came upon this car in the middle of the woods one day walking home from school, and her sister let go of her hand and told her to run and got into this car and was never seen again. And so Marty has grown up with all of this survivor's guilt and has, you know, reached this point in her life where everything has sort of fallen apart as a result of her um, obsession with her sister's disappearance. And so she she has this podcast that explores her sister's disappearance and it, it goes viral. It's very popular. And as a result, new leads start coming out of the woodwork. So she's contacted by this woman named Ava Vreeland about a case that Ava believes is connected to Marty's sister's disappearance. And it's a, a wrongful conviction case that she's trying to get overturned. And that's kind of where the, uh, the action of the book takes off from. Yeah. Wow. That sounds, that sounds fascinating. Are you, uh, were you a big fan of Serial? Huge fan of cereal. In fact, cereal was what I had in the back of my mind the entire time writing this because I was so fascinated by um, the, you know, the this kind of secondary characters of cereal. You know, everyone was sort of interested in the the main case, and I was so interested in, you know, the the family friend, the attorney who had sort of, you know, the was the reason that all of this had gotten started. And I thought, what must her life be like that she has spent the past decade or two, you know, just pretty much focused on, you know, getting this kid out of prison. And it's just like, what does that do to someone's life when they feel like nothing in their life can be set right until they have figured out how to right this fundamental wrong. Yeah. And so I got, yeah, I just became kind of obsessed with what does that do to a person, you know, that not only, you know, are, you know, are we interested in sort of the people who were involved in the case, but the, the people who were just impacted by it in the family, in the, in the local community, I found, I found really, really interesting and wanted to explore that. Yeah, no, I, uh, I was, my niece turned me on to cereal. And um, she and I were, were just joking around one day, and I said, you know, we should do a parody. This is going back, I don't know, eight years ago. I'm like, we should do a parody about this and call it cereal, but spell it like breakfast cereal. Yes. 
and have all the characters be, you know, the, the different serial mascots, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, have you yeah, seen that, that t-shirt, that serial killer t-shirt where it's just the mascots? Like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very good. No, but, uh, but you know, it really, it really ushered in like that podcast really ushered in like a resurgence for true crime because mm-hmm. it was a genre that, I mean, the genre has always been around in sort of book form and, but, um, you know, really, it really got a rebirth, uh, in the form of an audio story. And I think that mm-hmm. in terms of publishing, um, you know, true crime books have, have, have uh, had a resurgence as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about that. Like what is, you know, the root of our obsession with true crime as a culture. And, you know, I think podcasting so lends itself to true cr- crime because it allows you to do these deep dives that, you, you know, we sort of had never seen outside of book form. And unless you were a person who like true crime was your thing, you were probably not reading a lot of true crime books. And so podcasting gave us this way of just like on our commute, on our way to work in the morning, taking these deep dives, these episodic, um, you know, examinations of each aspect of a case, you know, here's the background, you know, this episode, we're going to go into this detail, this episode, we're going to look at this and this person, this other suspect that, you know, I think we'd never seen before. And I think, you know, in our culture, we've been, particularly those of us who grew up in the pre-internet age, we've been so used to engaging with the criminal justice system and engaging with, you know, cultural and societal violence in these sort of, you know, like 30-second snippets on the evening news that I think getting these deep dives and getting these, like, examinations of cases that we'd never seen before you know, I think it creates a lot of empathy in people. And I think it, you know, it gives people a wider view of what, you know, the impression was, was just sort of senseless, indiscriminate violence in our society. And I think that's, I think that's important. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. And I think, I think too, it's, it's like with it, with true crime podcasts, certainly serial, and there's, there's a whole bunch of others, obviously it, it brings you back to um, it's almost like my parents' generation. So my parents are in their late eighties or 88 and 89. And, you know, they, they of course grew up with, with radio and, mm-hmm. and serials on, on the radio. And I think what, what these podcasts have done are, or sort of simplify, they kind of simplify storytelling. Like you don't have all the visuals, right? You're not distracted by visuals, but if the, if the storytelling is good and captivating and of course, well-produced, um, it can, it can really hook you. And I, but I think the hook is also, it's just the simplicity of the format, you know, just mm-hmm. being able to engage and, and immerse yourself into this audio story without all the distractions that we see on TV or, you know, mm-hmm. in, in other places. Yeah. And it also gives you a person with a point of view bringing you through it, which I think is also really interesting. I mean, more often than not, um, you know, the, the, producer or the star of the podcast becomes this you know the kind of the central figure in the investigation you know for the listener and I feel like there's there's something interesting about giving somebody that agency and I think that's why in you know in the Lost Girls Marty became so fascinating to me because you know we do sort of allow people without you know any investigation experience any experience in law or criminal justice or even journalism at times you know, the, we give them this latitude in, you know, within podcasting to investigate on their own that, you know, normally people would never be given by the public, uh, you know, in any other circumstances. And I find that really interesting that you do also have this person with agency sort of in the center, 
that the audience is, you know, is going along with. And I think, you know, that creates a lot of complication, but also I think is one of the really fascinating things about it as a, as a medium. Yeah. Uh, so the lost girls is out now. Mm-hmm. I assume you can buy it wherever books are sold. Yeah. Yeah. Anywhere. Just, uh, yeah. Any, any of the major retailers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but, but, uh, I'm curious, it, did you have a backup plan? So for example, if, um, if the writing thing didn't work out, which I can't imagine it not doing right. Uh, but <laughs> let's, let's go to the land and make believe. Oh, I can imagine it. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure you could. Um, did you have a backup plan? I mean, was there a plan B? Did you, did you have an alternative career in mind? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I always had law school sort of in my back pocket, um, you know, as, as this, you know, I was always interested in politics. I got a degree in political science and, you know, there's always this side of me that feels like I love writing and that's why I enjoy doing it. And I think that's why I'm able to devote enough time to it that I've gotten good at it. But writing also feels like something that I do so much for myself that there was always a side of me that was like, maybe I should be doing something that has more benefit to society in general. Like stories are important and I do not want to downplay the the you know importance of art in our society but especially at the height of the trump administration there was a part of me that was always like well if the next book doesn't sell maybe i'll go into you know like public interest law <laughs> like maybe i'll give that a shot you know I, I it's so fascinating to me that you said um the legal profession because uh in, in the past i don't know five episodes maybe six episodes of the show uh <laughs> Three of them were with former lawyers. No who, kidding. Who all left the legal profession to write fiction. Yeah, yeah. I think there is something, in, there's some interesting crossover there. I'm friends with a lot of, of, of you know, current and former attorneys just because of, uh, I used to work at a law school. And there is something about the point of view that you are able to take on, like, you know, arguing a point and sort of creating an argument, I feel like in law has a lot in common with creating a point of view and creating story within fiction. I think there there are a lot of parallels there about the way that your brain has to work to sort of formulate, you know, a case to for, you know, for lack of a better term. Yeah. The other, the other answer that I commonly get when I ask that question is a uh, psychologist oh, yeah. um, because, you know, so, so often, you know, writing is about getting into the minds and the heads of, you know, not mm-hmm. only your characters, but as, as you pointed out uh, the reader and kind of what they're yeah. looking for and what they want. Yeah. It's interesting. My brother's a psychologist, so I have a little bit of a view into that. And there is a part of me that's just like, Oh boy. Like, uh, you know, that is a bridge too far for me. Cause I'm just like, I, I don't know what, how to help these characters that I've created. <laughs> like that would be like, I have, I have given them a lot of trauma and a lot to unpack and I am completely unqualified to, uh, to help them with any of that. So that's a, uh, that's an interesting answer though. Yeah. Well, they'll, they'll, you know, your characters can keep your brother in business. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's what he's there for. <laughs> if they weren't make-believe. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> So, I mean, just given your interest in writing from a very young age, I'm just curious as to if you remember any of the early stories that that you had started to write. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, we always had like writer's workshop in in school. And there was this story that I wrote one year that was a 
a finalist in this young author competition that Illinois had every year. And so, you know, I got to go down state to this conference in Springfield and it was like a big deal. And, and, you know, I, I just, the thing that always stuck out to me, it was just the, it was like a, um, little house on the prairie, like ish story about this girl and her horse and her best friend, you know, it was just very much, um, kids fiction, but there was a part, there was this revelation for me pretty early on when I started writing these stories that I was a, you know, I was a quiet kid and I was a daydreamer. You know, I would always be off in my head somewhere. And so I think the sort of the connection that I made when I thought, oh, like I could write this down and then, you know, d did that and then, you know, got you know, a positive response from the people around me, it was, it, that was, I think, the big turning point where it's like, oh, the, you know, the stuff that I sort of just sit around looking out the window thinking about, you know, writing myself into Little House on the Prairie, essentially, I can just put that down on paper and that's called writing and that's something that's valuable and that's something that's important. And so, yeah, for me, that's, you know, that's the one that always stuck out to me because that was, I just remember vividly, like, sitting at my parents' dining room table and just, like, you know, trying to figure out what to write and then just thinking, oh, I'll just write that. And it was, yeah, it was really a light bulb moment for me as a kid. So I'm curious, uh, how old were you at that point in time? Oh, I want to say that was either first or second grade. So probably seven-ish. Seven-ish. Okay. So, yeah. um, so think about yourself at seven years old and and think about yourself now and if you could write a letter to your seven-year-old self what what are some of the things that you might tell her um oh that's really that's an interesting one specific to writing or just general life it, lessons it could be general life lessons yeah um i would say not to worry too much about uh, getting things right the first time. I mean, I think in writing and outside of writing, I think, you know, there was always this sense that I knew so many people who knew exactly what they wanted to do with their lives and sort of, you know, had it all mapped out, you know, especially in high school, you know, there were always those kids who sort of had all the answers, you know, when it, when it, they started to look at colleges, that sort of thing. And for me, you know, I was interested in so many things. I think that, if I could tell kid me one thing, it would be, you know, just, yeah, follow your interests, you know, go where your energy takes you. And, you know, that has served me very, very well in my life. And I feel like that was a hard lesson to learn because you sort of want to get it right the first time. You don't want to be seen as shifting gears or the person who, like, hasn't figured it out, even graduating from undergrad. I mean, graduating, you know, and with a with a bachelor's in political science and thinking, oh, you know, I think I want to focus on creative writing felt like a very hard left turn for me and, and involved a lot of conversations with a lot of people in my life. Um, so and then I think I would also just tell her to, you know, to trust, you know, in your own abilities and to sort of um, don't, you know, don't second guess and don't allow the the inner critical voice to get too loud um because that's a very easy thing to do particularly in writing but in life in general as well that you know i think we're all you know a lot of us grow up as sort of mini perfectionists and want to just do everything perfectly and uh when you don't you're you know you beat yourself up over it and i think for me learning that 
life and work and success involves a lot of false starts and a lot of um, mistakes, I think was a hard lesson for me to finally learn. But um, I, I'm partially there, I think. Yeah. Well, it's, well, that seven-year-old girl turned out pretty good, I, I'd say. Thank you. Um, all right. So one, one, one other sort of more, more difficult question. So if, um, you know, God forbid, you're stranded on a desert island, right? Oh, God. What, what three authors, um, you don't have to give me the actual specific works, but what, what three authors would you want to have access to in terms of their body of work? Oh, see, this is a tricky one because this is like, it's not the favorite question. It's like, who has a very interesting and diverse body of work that would keep me occupied, right? Uh, Jennifer Egan, definitely. Um, Stephen King. And um, Octavia Butler. All right. What's, I gotta have to ask, what's your favorite King novel? I mean, I read it back in the day and just, I mean, that is an off the wall book. Like that, that book is. You think? Yeah. Like, but it was such a ride. I mean, it was just one of those where I was just like, all right, like I'm, there's, there's no stopping me now. Like, you know, I, I just, there's like, I will not get like, I have to finish this book. Like, yeah. you know, this book is, you know, more important to finish than, you know, like anything else that I have to do in my life. So yeah, it was, yeah. I think, you know, he's just such a, he's such an interesting writer and he just has such a crazy body of work that yeah. I, I don't think you're ever going to get bored, you know, if you're just reading a lot of Stephen King. Oh, not at all. I, I remember the, the first time I read The Stand. Um, oh, that yeah. was to me. And then now, like after this pandemic that we're kind of, kind of, still navigating our way through mm -hmm. um that that one kind of hit a little a little closer to home yeah yeah that one i have not read that one um but i i know what it's about and i think i was going like i was looking for books to read you know pandemic books and i was just like oh no maybe not that one that one seems a little intense maybe maybe wait till after you know after yeah, yeah <laughs> until we're like well out of the woods <laughs> it's in the rear view yeah um so, so many people who listen to the show are aspiring authors themselves. And I'm curious if, as we wrap up here, any, any words of advice that you'd give um, an aspiring author? Yeah, I think the thing that I always tell people, um, you know, when I teach or, you know, when I get the question from a younger writer would be take it seriously and don't take it seriously. And what I mean by that is you have to look at writing you know, as something that's very important in your life. You know, you have to be willing to carve out time for it and you have to be willing to sort of sit down and spend the time working away on it and really getting good, you know? And I think, you know, don't fall into the trap of thinking, you know, whatever you write is going to be good because most of us write a lot of crap and have to make it good. Um, so I think take it seriously, but then also don't take it seriously where it's like, if you're not having a good time, if you're trying to be perfect, if you're trying to write the next great American novel and think that you are, you know, the undiscovered literary genius out there, like maybe you're not playing, you know, playing around as much as you should be. Like, I think part of writing is just creating unexpected moments for yourself as well as for the reader. And having fun with it and sort of being able to be free with what you write. And so I think taking yourself too seriously as a writer 
kind of hinders you from really exploring and really sort of seeing what you're capable of and uh, where stories can go in surprising ways. So I feel like the, yeah, take it seriously, but don't take it seriously is probably my best and most uh, vague piece of advice. Well, there we are. Words of advice from Jessica Chiarella, author of The Lost Girls, which is available everywhere right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will say, though, to my listeners to, to really consider... Uh, going to your local independent-owned bookstores, because let's face it, they were having a hard time before the pandemic. Um, so if you have a choice, please consider buying it at a local independent bookstore. However, if you have to buy it online, I'm sure it's available at bookshop.org. Is that right, Jessica? That is correct, yes. All right. So that is a website that uh, does a wonderful job supporting uh, local independently-owned bookstores. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how they do it. I just know that they do it. And uh, my little bookstore in New Canaan, Connecticut, uh, benefits from it. So um, I will give them a plug as well. Jessica, this was a fun conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Oh, I so appreciate it. Yeah, I had a great time. And thank you so much for having me. 